a Florida educator who teaches future teachers has something to say about the state's education policies. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Anindya Kundu is preparing the future educators at Florida International University. He wrote to his students recently, speaking out about the recent laws passed in Florida that impact curriculum and the sort of books allowed in schools. He'll share with us his biggest concerns. Also, Jason Katz didn't like his choices of literary magazines in South Florida, so he started his own, the Islandia Journal. He'll share what motivates him and some of the quirky stuff that he puts in each issue. But first, State Senator Gary Farmer on his recent attacks on his own party. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. The Florida legislature is under Republican rule and it has been for years. What is the role of Democrats in the legislature? Are they doing enough to fight for the people that voted them into office? One South Florida Democrat has not refrained from checking his own party. State Senator Gary Farmer for Broward County is now considering running for a position in the courts and he joins us now. Senator Farmer, it's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. You know, you recently argued that Democrats in Florida right now have, quote, no guts and enable the agenda set by Governor DeSantis. Those are some strong words. Why say them now? Well, um, you know, I made the statements I made uh, at that Democratic club uh, the timing was important because, um, as you indicated in the introduction, I am uh, I have qualified uh, to run for judge uh, in the uh, circuit court for Broward County, Florida. Uh, and so um, the judicial canons uh, that control uh, my candidacy um, put um, some uh, restrictions on my ability to speak about politics. But uh as as i was quoted on wednesday uh as saying uh when when you when you run under a particular party label uh i believe that you are representing to the voters that uh you ascribe to uh and will uphold uh the ideals beliefs and values um uh, upon which that party uh is based uh or, or which they believe in and uh, I just think that um, what has happened in Florida, uh, I used the term uh, Stockholm Syndrome uh, in the interview uh, to describe uh, some of my colleagues and um, their uh, willingness uh, to compromise those ideals and beliefs um, in order to accomplish uh, some of their own uh, uh, personal goals uh, as legislators. Let and me- I just... Don't think that's appropriate. Let's go back to last year. Uh, You were voted out of your position as the leader of the Democratic Party in the Florida Senate. Senator Lauren Book was put in the position. Are you and the Democratic Party heading in different directions? I don't know. I don't believe so. I don't believe myself and the party are heading in in different directions. I think... um, myself and members of the Senate Democratic Caucus are uh, or were heading uh, in different directions uh, with regard to, uh, as I said, uh, uh, 
upholding and 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 fighting for uh, the core uh, beliefs and principles uh, that that uh, compelled us to uh, register and run as uh, members of the Democratic Party, uh, as opposed to uh, the Republican Party or even no party affiliation. What did you mean when you said uh, in that interview that saying that Democrats have enabled the Republicans? Well, um, when uh, when you're a member of a minority caucus, uh, um, you know, you're just that you're you're in the minority. And so, um, you, you know, Democrats in the Senate don't have uh, the votes to enact policy uh, or uh, to uh, uh, stop bad policy or policy with which they disagree uh, on their own. However, there are certain things that occur uh, in the course of uh, a legislative session that require uh, a supermajority vote. And uh, uh, the Democratic caucus in the Senate is comprised of enough Democrats that um, if if the Democrats so choose, um, they can block things uh, that require a supermajority vote. Is there, one in, is there that, one in specific that you would point to this last time? Because I mean, the Republicans hold both chambers and the governor's mm-hmm. office. Wh- which one in particular could the Democrats have done something? In this last legislation, uh, well, well, for I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, uh, any any uh, legislation that impacts uh, Florida's uh, open government or sunshine laws, uh, uh, very important uh, laws, a long history in Florida that we um, closely protect and guard uh, the openness uh, of of our records, so that the citizens have a right to know what is going on in their government. So. Any law that affects a public records, uh, existing public records law requires that two thirds vote. Uh, there were bills um, that would pri- uh, 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 take out of the sunshine and make confidential uh, the search for new university presidents. Uh, and and the fear there, um, as stated by uh, the United Faculty of Florida and others who are directly impacted, is that um, by taking the uh, nomination and early screening process out of the sunshine and making it uh, confidential and not subject to public review, you're setting up a situation where for political cronyism over uh, uh, merits of of the educators. Uh, Similarly, there was a a public records law with regard to uh, the chemicals and uh, uh, drugs used uh, to enact the death penalty. Um, this is a very, you know, this is the ultimate punishment by government taking the life of another person uh, and uh, to make the uh, uh, drugs that are, are part of that process uh, exempt from public records uh, not only takes away the rights of Floridians, but it allows uh, companies in Europe to violate European law uh, that says that the drugs cannot be used uh, uh, to um, enact the death penalty. So since all of this has gone down, have you heard from any of your fellow Democrats? How, how have they responded? Uh, not, not, not a one has uh, called me. Um, uh, uh, a few were quoted uh, in the article itself, but uh, nobody has, has reached out to me. Um, I, 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 I bear no personal uh malice or or animus to to any of my colleagues uh uh but um i said what i said because uh i believe it very strongly and and i you know anybody who doubts anything that i said in that article i can you know cite (laughs) to uh the 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 specific bills and the very moments where 
um, the caucus had an opportunity uh, to, to to make the difference and and fight for the uh, core democratic values that that make us part of that party, and we failed to do so. Again, I'm talking with Democratic State Senator Gary Farmer, Broward County, as he mentioned. He filed to run to be a judge at the 17th Circuit Court in Broward County. Um, I wanted to ask you about looking back on this last legislative session. The GOP Mm -hmm. passed, pushed and passed the parental rights laws, uh, one of them that allows parents greater powers uh, to challenge the kind of books that are removed from libraries and curriculums. How much responsibility should parents have in that decision? Yeah, and I I cannot comment on the law itself because uh, if if the good residents of Broward County do see fit to elect me uh, to the bench, I may have to oversee um, a case or controversy that is uh, involves uh, that statute. Uh, but I will say that uh, in general, um, I am a parent, and uh, uh, and I do believe that parents um, have uh, you know the right to be uh, involved in in their children's education. Uh, Having said that, uh, I also believe that we choose schools and and educators uh, uh, and give them uh, a certain amount of uh, discretion uh, in in the materials that they present. And uh, uh, personally, uh, my life, my viewpoints, my uh, beliefs and 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 uh, goals and dreams and everything about me uh, have been formed over a lifetime of learning, and uh, oftentimes uh, that education process or or uh, the act of learning can involve learning some things that are are new that are maybe uncomfortable that uh, maybe uh, appear to be uh, 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 quote unquote out of the norm. Uh, or or novel, uh, and and that's just part of the experience of education. And so, I think it's a fine line when you're talking about where uh, the parents' rights, um, you know, how far they go or, can, or or where they end. Can you say, uh, especially when they affect other kids? It, it's one thing to say that I don't want my child to to read a book. Uh, uh, it's quite another thing to say that no other child in that school uh, has the ability to read that book either. Can you say anything about, I wanted your thoughts on uh, Senator Manny Diaz Jr. being put in as head of the Florida Department of Education. Do you think that he's qualified? What do you, what do you feel about that situation? Uh, you know, um, <laughs> uh, again, I, uh, the judicial canons, I think, uh, uh, constrict me or, or restrict me a little bit here. Uh, certainly Senator Diaz, um, you know, has served in the legislature a, a long time. Uh, he uh, does have uh, experience as an educator. Uh, you know, I, um, I think in a position like that where you're overseeing uh, education for the entire state, I think um, it's important that uh, your experience uh, as an educator or in the education education system is very broad based and diverse. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I think Senator Diaz's uh, uh, experience has been uh, a little bit more focused, uh, but, um, but Senator Diaz uh, is a friend of mine. Um, I do think, um, you know, uh, he cares about children uh, and he cares about educating children. And uh, my hope uh, is that much in the way that I must uh, <laughs> put aside some of my uh, uh, political uh, 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 statesmanship and, and uh, activism uh, to be an independent jurist, 
uh, my hope is that uh, Senator Diaz uh, will likewise uh, put aside some of his party's uh, uh, strong-held political beliefs uh, in uh, the effort to be the best and fairest uh, 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 chair of uh, the Department of Education uh, that we can have. All right. Uh, you know, again, I, I wondered what, uh, coming back to this legislature, uh, this legislative session, what Democrats could have done to stop the GOP from passing what they wanted in the redistricting maps that the governor actually pushed forward. Um, what can you do if the Republicans hold Tallahassee? Well, uh, again, I, I have to be careful here, uh, and and I I am you know very committed to to uh, complying with the uh, judicial canons, uh, uh, but it's it's very much a numbers game when you're talking about legislation and uh, and you need to have a majority of votes uh, to win uh i think the frustration for all of us and candidly uh why i am uh leaving the legislative branch to go into the judicial branch but you're going if i may because yes. you yes you're thinking about now running for a very different position but what about yep. the, what do you say to the voters who voted you in as the state senator to represent them, and they're not happy about what happened? Well, I, I think that uh, if 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 you don't uh, if a voter or voters are unhappy uh, with the uh, course of events uh, or direction of of Florida's legislature or or its executive branch, the answer is very simple. Um, we we live in a democracy, and the beauty of our republic is is. Uh, the perhaps our most important constitutional right of all, the right to vote. And so uh, um, I think that uh, um, for many uh, people, uh, I get the sense that uh, they are frustrated because they believe that uh, uh, certain influences uh, on the legislative process are so strong that their vote, you know, quote unquote, doesn't really matter. Uh, and and that's I think a, a sad thing and a dangerous thing when you're talking about a democracy. Uh, uh, it is comprised. Our country is comprised of people of all different types of beliefs, uh, and our constitution and system of government is set up in a way to, to recognize and, and respect uh, a diversity of beliefs. Uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, the beliefs uh, of a majority of Floridians or Americans will will control. Uh, who governs either the state or the country. And so uh, for, for folks that are, are frustrated or angry uh, at, at the direction uh, that the state's going, uh, the answer is very simple. Get energized and get more people out there who agree with you to vote. That is Democratic State Senator Gary Farmer of Broward County. Senator, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. I enjoyed being on. Take care. And again, we can share uh, that link to the story on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, we're going to hear from an educator about the controversy over rejecting certain math textbooks in Florida. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Educators have been thrust onto the front lines of today's culture wars. Florida has taken a lead nationally in proposing and passing controversial education initiatives that will impact classrooms, from identity conversations to the way history is taught. 
Recently, the state's Department of Education rejected 42 of 143 math textbooks, claiming they contain, quote, prohibited topics, which may include examples of critical race theory. Well, joining me now to talk about this is Anindya Kundu. He is an assistant professor of educational leadership at Florida International University. Anindya, great to have you back. Hey, Louis. Great to be here. How are you? Uh, you know what? I'm good. Been looking forward to this conversation, considering everything that's been going on. Uh, you know, politics seeping into the classroom is not new. But I-, I wondered your take on, is there something different or unique about what you've seen this last year? It's not new, but um, as you know, in the recent op-ed I wrote for the Miami Herald, it's interesting being in the context of Florida and seeing, as you said in your intro, these culture wars playing out in education. You know, I got into education because I care about students, I care about children, I care about creating the conditions for young people to want to learn and become lifelong learners. It's interesting being here I say that with a smile on my face, you know, uh, in an election year and kind of watching education become an arena for a political spectacle. And, you know, I'm excited for this conversation. I think a lot of the issue has to do with schools just kind of being hijacked uh, and put in this place of debate when it's not really what our teachers or our students need. As you said, too, by the way, in your op-ed, that what, it was a friend's text that got you all fired up about this? It was, yeah. Uh, so I had already emailed my students because I was I was a little bit fired up, but I've learned to, to temper, you know, my emotions having lived here for a, a, the greater part of a year now. Uh, and I, you know, I emailed my students because I know what they think about. I know what they care about. I've gotten to know them. And so I emailed my students and then it was a text from one of my childhood best friends, you know, jokingly saying, Hey, so your kids can't learn math right now. And as someone who just became a recent dad, I was like, you know what, that is a little bit annoying, especially when we're talking about social, emotional learning, like that is very dear, near and dear to the core of my training and my background. I think it's important. Um, and so that's why I decided to send my email to my students to the Herald. And before I knew it, you know, they published it. Hmm. All right. So let's let's dive into this. So Florida rejects uh, a couple dozen math, a few dozen math textbooks, citing Mm -hmm. that they include, quote, prohibited topics. And one of them, like you just said, social emotional learning or critical race theory. Now, the evidence the state has provided has been minimal. But let's, you know, we'll look into this. First, I wanted to ask about this idea of critical race theory in schools. Sure. I hear from teachers and administrators that say we don't teach this stuff. But, you know, what do you think about that argument, that debate, you know, of, of CRT being in the curriculum? Is it really? So that that's what I hear, too. Uh, my students, a.k.a. teachers and school leaders, are my ears on the ground. Um, They don't think they're teaching this stuff. Uh, You know, very quickly for the listeners out there who may also be tired of hearing about critical race theory or CRT, it's a highly academic framework for understanding or making sense of a complex phenomenon in which this case, that phenomenon is racism and structural racism specifically. And so a bunch of lawyers came up with a very uh, 
legal framework that I think has a lot of merit to understanding how we still have de facto racism, even though, you know, we have all of this colorblind legislation and a lot of education scholars, many of which who I look up to, uh, like scholars, I say, you know, uh, people who have been pushing the field of research for a while have been able to apply that to education. So I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with it, but as someone who's been trained in sociology of education um, and educational research for 10 years, I don't even feel comfortable teaching critical race theory to public school students. And so I don't think public school educators, and as I said in the op-ed, with what we're paying them and with what, what they're being rewarded are tr trying to sneak in critical race theory into schools. What's actually happening is that critical race theory is a, a scapegoat. It's being co-opted. It's standing for something that it's not actually. And I've been talking to my students, and you know, the most they get close to this stuff is in their own anti-bias training. They're not going into CRT topics with their students. Ideally, they are teaching their students a whole uh, fully encompassing view of history that is age appropriate, but, you know, they are not teaching CRT. All right, let's go to the other uh, topic, uh, social emotional learning. What, what does that entail? So social emotional learning, let's call it SEL, you know, that is probably half the reason I felt compelled to write the piece I wrote. Um, you know, I think that's one of the bigger reasons that this rejection charade matters more for all public school students and parents. You know, let me ask you, like, what do you want your kids to grow up and be like as they start to come into their own, as they start to develop into young adulthood and adulthood? You know, most of us would say we want them to be a whole person. Uh, what does that mean? You know, we want them to be socially and emotionally intelligent in different settings. Uh, be able to, uh, you know, interact with other people and, and be able to provide them some insight and learn from them. And we ideally want them to be educated in that same way, treating them as socially and emotionally competent, full human beings. So that means in psychology, having self-awareness, having confidence, integrity, you know, I would say uh, having the ability to care and empathize with others, which is maybe something we're missing nowadays. Um, one of my main mentors in my training is Angela Duckworth, who many of you know from her work on grit. These are character traits that we find to be very important through very validated research in psychology and educational psychology and early childhood education research to matter in the development of people. You know, so, if, if yeah. I may, though, hearing, sure, that, sure. hearing that, it sounds like, okay, we want to help a child develop into a good person, right? Sure. That's what we were trying to do. But how, how does that, you know, matter when you're talking about teaching math or English or science? I, I don't see how it doesn't matter. So, um, you know, look, thinking about examples of books that were rejected, as you said, what the evidence provided was quite vague. A couple of the, you know, people had to investigate to figure out what might be wrong. And in a couple instances, what caught my eye is that the textbooks were, you know, encouraging students to employ a growth mindset. So what is a growth mindset? So that is basically telling students or helping students understand that the journey and the reward of learning is in itself, you know, what we're after. That even though math is challenging, and you're going to hear this in schools across the country is that students don't think of themselves as able or capable to do math. Uh, but things like growth mindset or grit 
or my own work on student agency, try to help students understand that no, you can, and in fact, you should take learning into your own hands because as you start to like go into high school or go into college or go into the workplace, there'll be less guidance. So you're going to have to figure out these hard problems and leverage resources on your own. And I'm, so okay. that's how I think it's important. Yeah. I'm still, you know what? And, and maybe look, it's just because of my age and my generation. I think about <laughs> yeah. when I, when I learned math, yeah. you know, and a lot of people will remember this, it was the cue cards. Here's the time. Here's the multiplication tables, memorize them. Here's yep. the division tables, memorize them. And that was, that was basically it. Or we had the little counters and that was it. I'm looking at, for example, you know, some of the examples that New York Times found uh, instances in these books that were banned, uh, specifically the math textbooks, because they were asking students to reflect on how math makes them feel Mm. or asking students to write a math biography. And that's telling Mm. a story on how math has impacted their life. That, That seems really strange to some of us because we didn't grow up with that. But what does that mean? How math makes me feel. I mean, am I not just learning that two and two is four? Do I, I, I have to put feeling to that? Right. So I have I have so many answers. So let me try to, <laughs> try to organize them a little. And okay. one of them would be, how much of your math do you actually remember? Like, can you tell us what the Pythagorean theorem is right now? And I think a part of our inability to do that is our 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 failed educational systems that didn't help us form genuine connections with the material that we were learning. And I think that's where we are now. The science has pushed us to this place. And I hope we're not being anti-science to understand that for children to take math and learning into their own hands, they have to form those connections. You know, education one-on-one research. This is something that we talk about fundamentally. As soon as my students come in, everyone's grappled with this idea that students are not empty vessels, right? Like, it comes from Brazilian Paulo Freire's foundational work. We're not just filling up these mugs of, of, of cups of, of water that are all the same. No, every child is different. Every parent knows this. And what we really want is that these children, rather than be deposited with knowledge, they get to dialogue and learn and co-create so that they can see their place in the world and make a better future. And I don't think that's fluffy. Like I literally think that's exactly how it works. And that's how children find joy in learning. So it sounds like, I mean, I'm wondering what role schools and educators play in helping that student develop these social emotional skills when mm-hmm. before we were learning that on our own or being around each other or at home. Right. And I think that's that's kind of why teachers, again, they're the reason I wrote that piece. Teachers are the guardians of our future. That's why they get into this work. They obviously don't get into the work for you know the money. Some may say they get into the work for summers off, but I don't think so because they wake up before us They're taking care of our kids in this state. They didn't know what modality they're going to be learning, teaching in online, in person, masks on, masks off. That's why this political stuff is just kind of distracting them from the reasons they've gone on to these graduate schools to do what they know how to do best, which is interact with our kids and, and, you know, really push them to be their best selves. And, and, And by the way, I mean, and I don't have it in front of me, but I know that the U.S. internationally, we don't rank high when it comes to math compared to other students. Those other countries that are beating us, are they also doing, are they teaching the same thing? Are they teaching? Are they teaching SEL? Are they, yes. 
Yeah, I, I honestly think they they are. They're doing so many things that we're not doing. And fundamentally, I would say what they're doing is they're realizing that these disciplines are not boxed. They're not isolated. Rather, we live in an interdisciplinary world. Students are, you know, getting to shadow workplaces as early as middle school. They get to go on, um, you know, business trips. They get to do internships instead of take classes. And, and that's how you really get to see, oh, this is the math that I just learned, or this is the science that I just learned. Because students are always asking why. And the more you make them ask why, they're gonna forget the what. You know, that's like a fundamental educational uh, conversation we have. And I do think other countries are doing this. And I do think it's our political gridlock that is keeping us from doing that. And what's interesting is that, you know, the PISA test scores, the international test scores, if you were to control for poverty in this country, we would actually catch up to a lot of those other international countries that were lagging behind and so that's that's something that we have to really come to terms with yeah and i and i i never bring up the past to say that it was better in my time it was just different <laughs> granted i'll say when my nephews ask for help i sometimes feel like i can't help you anymore right. i'm talking with sociologist anindia kundu he's an assistant professor of educational leadership at fiu talking about education in florida Recently, the state rejected dozens of math textbooks citing that they include social-emotional learning or critical race theory. The evidence from the state for making this call has been minimal, and they've only shared a handful of pages with a few details. Uh, the New York Times has reviewed 21 of these rejected books to see why the state made the call. We're going to talk about some of those examples uh, still, and, and you can find more of the reporting on this on our social media, WLRN Sundial. You know, so in India, the... the this concept linked to social emotional learning, it's, it's received, as you know, it's received a lot of criticism mm -hmm. uh, from those who say that this is, you know, the concept of grit and growth mindset that some argue these concepts don't take into account students who live in poverty or right. have to overcome race and language barriers. Have these concepts like SEL, have they always been controversial? What's your take on that argument? You know, it's interesting. I think this is one of the reasons that scientists or those of us who are academics or scholars like getting in the work we get into because it allows us to have these dialogues. So I, as a sociologist, as someone who cares deeply about inequality and, and uh, inequality linked to race and class in this country, I was one of those critics of grit. Uh, this was, you know, Eight years ago, you can look at my work. I was writing very critically about grit. And what ended up happening was I got to have a conversation with Angela Duckworth, the person who coined the term. And we've learned from each other. We realized that you know, there was both uh, things we could learn from each other and like things that we could add to our dialogue. She ended up joining my dissertation committee, really pushed me to be the scholar that I am today. And so the point of that is that science can push itself to get better. I think socio-emotional learning is a very particularly good example of something that we all want to be as best as possible when we're talking about something like kids. And so we're always pushing each other, each other to make sure that the science is living up to the lived realities and, that students are encountering. And you, you, again, you, you're working with Angela Duckworth at the University of Pennsylvania on this research. Real quickly, though, we've said it a few times, and I want to make sure we get this, uh, understand this, grit. Can you give me yeah. a, a quick description? 
Sure, it's a passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And going back to your question, as a sociologist, I think all students have grit, but I think we've gone about the wrong way of identifying it. That kid who's helping their siblings get ready for school before they get a chance to get ready for school, that's grit. And so that's the conversation I've been adding to the dialogue. We do have to take, take context into consideration when thinking about grit, grit, growth mindset, and resilience. And that's where I think agency comes into play. What advice do you have for teachers? Because you have written to your students, the future teachers, but what advice do you have for teachers right now, especially those debating leaving the profession? Yeah, that's that's a very important question. Uh, the first thing is that, I, you know, it's Teacher Appreciation Week, so I hope everybody listening can take a second to thank a teacher in their lives that have really positively influenced them. I, I That's a reminder to myself to go uh, email a certain person after this talk. Um, but, you know, I being in this position where I get to inspire or collaborate or converse with educators has also kind of brought me to this point where I'm also a little bit fed up, which is why I wrote the op-ed that I wrote. I'm not trying to provide empty inspiration to educators because let's be honest like teachers are leaving the profession they feel like they've been deprofessionalized they feel like people are not allowing them to teach to the best of their ability and the best of their knowledge and it's not like money is keeping them there so like what is keeping them there and it's it's young people it's students it's kids you know i was i was listening to a conversation between teachers the other day and the the point one of them made to the other was that you have to remember that every student in your class is someone else's whole world. And as someone who just became a dad, like that, that made me pause and think, and that's how selfless teachers really are. So, you know, for the new um, people in power in, in our, our education department, I really hope that they kind of step up to the plate and realize in Florida, our teachers are not getting paid competitively compared to other states. We really need to professionalize the profession and provide more incentives to attract and retain our best teachers because they're the ones who are going to make sure we have and you, doctors, lawyers, all those things we need. I mean, you're kind of saying it too, but I just briefly, you know, you're talking to parents. What do you want to say to them? I want to tell parents that, you know, I used to think the most important question was, how can I get you to care about other people's children? And I'm starting to realize that you don't have a choice. You know, this ideological warfare, cultural war we have going on, so many people are saying America first. They're the people who are also against CRT or SEL in schools. But if you really want America to be first, we have to focus on our schools. Otherwise, a country like China is going to straight up eat our lunch. And the only way we can be better prepared for the future is to invest more in public education. Our military budget is through the roof, but our educational budget is minimal and it's embarrassing. And I think it's time for us to band together over education because that's what we need to be prepared for the future. Otherwise, you know, the same mistakes of the past, we're bound to repeat them. I do want to get your take on uh, Senator Manny Diaz Jr. being confirmed as the next education commissioner. What do you hope he and other state representatives take into account and recognize on education right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to give him a chance. You know, I know he is an educator by background, and um, I think that is deeply important. But again, Florida is consistently in the news um, for policies that we're enacting in education, and it's a giant distraction, and it would be nice not to be in the news all the time. So I really hope that uh, Manny Diaz Jr. recognizes 
things that are important that matter right now, but will also matter five to 10 years from now, which is the teacher shortage and that salary, salaries here are not competitive compared to other states. Like we really have to address this first because I'm very worried about what that means from five years from now. Like a couple of days ago, you guys had a segment about the nursing shortage, but that was directly linked to nurse educator shortage. Right. And that's the same across professions. And so, you know, as far as education goes, just focus on education, just focus on what students need to learn and thrive. And a lot of that is supporting teachers even though it's an election year, I really hope that we're not going to be pushing political agendas on the expense of schools. That is a very good point, but I'm going to push back a little bit. Florida not making the news. My friend, I know you've only been here a year. We <laughs> yeah. make the news all the time. That's right. Aninya Kundu, again, Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at FIU. It is always a pleasure. Great to have you back. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Lewis. All right. And by the way, we'd love to hear from you if you're a parent or a teacher. Your thoughts on this argument? What do you think as we move forward? Join our Sundial Text Club because we'd love to hear your thoughts. 786-677-0767. That's 786-677-0767. Well, still to come, extinct Florida species, hidden Florida history. We'll talk with the publisher of Islandia Journal. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Do you love discovering hidden South Florida history? Maybe some myths, some folklore, maybe the paranormal? The Islandia Journal is a quarterly, quote, subtropical periodical that looks to give its readers all of that and more in each issue. You've got poetry, essays, selections from UFOs over Florida, and illustrations of Max Club Deuce on Miami Beach. That's just in the most recent issue, by the way. Jason Katz is the journal's founder and publisher, and he joins us now. Jason, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. J- Jason, I was actually having this conversation with my producers. I was like, are we saying the name right? Is it Islandia or Islandia? That, you know, it's funny. I, I never expected this to be the case, but this is always the first question I get. Uh, when it comes to the journal, I think it's, you know, it's Islandia or, you know, some people call it Islandia, you know, some people in Miami. I've gotten the occasional Islandia, which is confounding because there's just no reason for that one. <laughs> All right, I'm going to I'm going to admit, I think the first time I said it, I did say it that way. So that's 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 on me. I'm sorry. We're, well, well, you know what? There's actually um, there's. Uh, the correct pronunciation, if you believe the founders of the lost city of Islandia, you know, a once and decommissioned city off the coast of South Florida, is it was pronounced Islandia. And they 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 made that very clear in one of their founding documents, which I uncovered in the, the archives at the University of Miami. Mm. Uh, yeah. See, that's that's the thing about this journal is that, you know, you're focused on some of this really interesting, strange, quirky and unknown uh, history and, and these stories that we don't even think about or didn't, never learned. But where did the idea for the journal come from? Why'd you want to do it? So I always wanted to create something that reflected Miami out into the greater world. You know, we always think of ourselves as being um, like oriented towards the rest of America. Well, Miami, the next this or that, or Miami as it's compared to New York in a lot of cases, but Miami is so special unto itself. And I just wanted to reflect that back into the world. I had a failed attempt at doing that uh, during college, (laughs) 
I was in a band and I thought that was it. Okay, maybe the music can can be the message or the medium. And uh, and I was in a band called the Mustache Rendezvous. <laughs> and we had one one concert and then we broke up. So that kind of like as that dream fizzled, uh, I needed to find other ways of doing it. And so I was I was getting my MFA at FIU and I was seeing the landscape of literary magazines. And we had a great one at FIU. It's called uh, Gulfstream. But I thought that for a publication in South Florida to be you know, great, that it really needed to reflect the place more than invite others to the place. Like we have so much talent here, uh, so many so many people with such strong voices. And I just wanted to create a space where those could all kind of like, I don't know, be like, like float some and jet some and collect. But then coming back to what you said earlier about Islandia, why, why name it after that? Well, I thought like I, I'd, I'd uh, decided on these themes or these these vehicles for storytelling, um, like myth, folklore, cryptozoology, paranormal, as like the things that what I wanted to define the journal's identity as. And I thought there was no better way to name it than to name it after uh, like a, a, a city off the coast of Miami, uh, which was decommissioned and turned into a national park. So not only does it kind of inspire the idea of lost cities that like Atlantis might, but it's much nearer and dearer to us and is also uh, a rare environmental victory in the history of Miami. So I just thought that kind of heritage would be really nice in a name. I'm not going to lie, though. Your, your former band name would have been cool, too, probably. <laughs> I, thought, I thought we had it, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you get the, I mean, from, from an idea to something that the uh, Islandia Journal, that the foundation, Knight Foundation wanted to fund through its Arts uh, Challenge Grant? We just had to put one out there. You know, I had no uh, real experience in laying things out. So that was the biggest barrier to entry for me. You know, having had some experience in publishing and freelance journalism and having kind of like a network of friends and writers here in South Florida, I knew that the hardest part for me would be to lay the thing out and, and print it and and then also kind of come up with the cash to do so. Um, but luckily, I kind of had a chance encounter with a friend, uh, Christina Gonzalez, who lays out all of these issues. We, we, we ended up on a camping trip together as I was thinking about it and, and she offered up help. And we've done three of them since. And thanks to that night grant you uh, mentioned, we're gonna do three more this year. Uh, and then also it's for, it's a two year grant. So we're gonna do four in 2023 also. Was, was part of it because you didn't like the literary magazine a space that that uh, represented South Florida. You you just didn't like what was out there. Well, I mean, there wasn't. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of uh, literary exports down here. We have, I mean, uh, you know, going all the way back to the Miami Book Fair and, and the institution that is, you know, Books and Books and and Mitchell and and we have the Poetry Festival and we have uh, book leggers. So all these like you know literary institutions and and not to mention a ton of great writers. You know, from from some of the staff at our creative writing programs who have published you know, in various genres and, and a lot of our contemporary novelists and, and poets. Um, I just thought that there could be this, this different type of vessel, this kind of hole in the middle of all of that. Um, and it was just a place for a lot of this to collect uh, around themes that, that I thought people who, who have lived here for a while or identify as creative people down here would, would find interesting. All right. There, let's talk about some of the stuff that you put in here because I love, for example, you feature in every issue an extinct animal from South Florida. <laughs> this is awesome. And in the in the most recent one that's coming out soon, 
Uh, you, you talk about the Cuban red macaw, but what, mm-hmm. why do this? Uh, I mean, I think there's like a, a, a not so subtle undercurrent of environmental advocacy in almost every single thing that's in the journal. Yeah, sure. We might have a poem about, about you know, Max Club Deuce, but a, a lot of the kind of like um, recurring uh, segments in our in our journals, so the the extinct animal or or the cryptid, um, a lot of these extinction stories or these mythological stories are ones of uh, habitat destruction or climate change. Uh, so it was important to kind of like use these these beautiful things that that you don't have the opportunity to see anymore. These beautiful creatures or or these mythological creatures that that you wish you could see uh, as the way into folklore about about habitat destruction, you know, in the case of the Cuban red macaw, um, it's a story of the plumage trade of, of colonialism, but then also of the increasing power of, of tropical weather events, you know, over the last few hundred years. Again, something that makes you think that you didn't know before. Very fascinating. Again, talking yeah. with Jason Katz, founder and publisher of the subtropical quarterly called the Islandia Journal. It compiles, again, myth and paranormal and prose and all kinds of really interesting and and, and strange history of South Florida. Check them out on Instagram at uh, Islandia Journal, and we'll help you find them on our social media as well at WLRN Sundial. Um so, Jason, your publisher's note in in the most recent issue uh, sort of rebrands an old City of Miami PR slogan. What does Miami see it as invasive mean to you? So uh, I thought that the the original ad campaign, it was 1979, the city was kind of entering uh, a period of dramatic change. 1980 was about to be this very formative year. Um, uh, you know, there was a book I read recently that documents a lot of the events of that year. I think it was called Year of Dangerous Days by, by Nicholas Griffin. So we had the, the boat lift was about to happen. The, you know, the, the cops uh, murdering Arthur McDuffie. Um, Maurice Ferrer was mayor. Uh, there was a lot of cocaine coming into the city. And so the city wanted to kind of like rebrand itself. Say, hey, remind everybody that despite all this turmoil, we're, we're still really sexy. Uh, so come see it like a native, you know, here's a half naked uh, snorkeler and and, you know, come and spend your tourist dollars here. Um, and I just thought it was like a, a loaded kind of way of glossing over, you know, some of the realities of this place. I thought the more kind of inclusive way of thinking of ourselves today uh, and the kind of transient nature of Miami would be to think of ourselves. Uh, yeah, because sure, like if you're born here, you can I- identify yourself as a native absolutely you know that's not taking that away but at the same time the the founding of miami was a you know destruction of like a large swamp and the displacement of native tribes and um you know i thought it would be more apt to think of ourselves instead in an irreverent kind of like fun way uh as invasive i mean the way we all are it's a much more kind of inclusive way of thinking of of anybody who loves this place and and can kind of uh, laugh at themselves uh, rather than seeing yourself as a native or exclusionary or, or provincial. You talked about, uh, you know, that you have a number of more, four more issues coming out for the next year, right? Yeah. So where do you see this going? I mean, what, what's your goal? I mean, it's just like, it's been pretty organic so far. You know, I had no vision for it uh, like very long term when I started. I just hoped that it would, you know, kind of like excite some people and and hey, let's see what happens. But the night grant allowed me to uh, bring on some more folks who I'm really excited about. We have three fellows 
uh, Valerie Vargas, Fola Akinde, Adrian Ramirez uh, in editorial, digital, and design. And we're going to be taking on more fellows um, to help us birth each issue of the journal for the rest of the year and then in 2023. And, and you know, honestly, who knows where it goes from there? Uh, you know, it could be that we move some of the content that's that's in the printed journal because an important thing you know for listeners to know is that it only exists in print and and you can only either buy it on our website or or at a you know it's and stocked at, you know and i wanted to ask you about that because i'm obviously yeah. living in a digital world that yeah. you still want it to be on only paper yeah well we i, I figure like uh you know the instagram page is very active and that's where i do a lot of my own kind of self-expression because I, I include myself in the journal in my publisher's note but the rest of the work is all from other contributors so the instagram page is kind of you know it's Islandia journal but i, I do a lot of the uploading and captioning and that's where i share a lot of the kind of hidden archival histories that i uncover personally um, so there is a digital presence in that way, but as far as like a digital publication goes, that might be, you know, in the offing. Um, but I did want to start with the print. First of all, it was this very tangible kind of, well, okay, just from a practical perspective, you know, I had to put some money into it and I, and I wanted to create a way to keep it going and to be able to pay contributors. Right. And I was not yet, um, savvy enough or 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 experienced enough in the world of digital publications to to be able to which is very difficult and complicated i mean it speaks to the kind of broader state of of journalism and stuff like this as you all know like it's very difficult to maintain that and to find funding for it and so yeah. i wanted to kind of create more of a token into a world uh, rather than a pure publication. But me, I really hope that that might be in the offing. Let me put the pressure on you in 30 seconds. <laughs> I want to come back to this. Islandia. Yeah. Where was that? What was it? So the lost, the quote unquote lost city of Islandia, um, the biggest, uh, it was 33 islands in Biscayne Bay, uh, all of which are now part of Biscayne National Park. The biggest island in the city of Islandia is Elliot Key. Um, and then it was uh, 33 islands ranging from the Ragged Keys. Um, so when you when you head south from Cape Florida, Key Biscayne, there's an eight mile stretch of ocean called um, uh, Ralph Monroe coined, coined a term for it. And it's called the safety valve. Um, and it's like these sand flats, eight miles of sand flats. And once you reach the Ragged Keys, so begins Islandia. Wow. Islandia was incorporated in 1962 by uh, a group of property uh, owners, including the infamous Luther Brooks of early Miami landlording fame. Uh, and, and it heads all the way down almost to where basically Ocean Reef is now. All right. So see, I just we, we just learned something. I did not know. <laughs> I knew nothing about this. And I, I grew up in South Florida. Jason Katz, <laughs> he's the founder and publisher of the Subtropical Quarterly, Islandia Journal. Learn more about it, about the publication and how you could subscribe, get the print copies on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Jason, thanks so much. It's such a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this Tuesday, May 3rd. Coming up tomorrow, cryptocurrency becoming a big deal in Latin America. We're going to look at what happened in El Salvador. That was the first country to accept Bitcoin. Panama and Brazil uh, edging closer to making that a reality. WLRN's Latin America editor, Tim Padgett, will join us. We'll also discuss the ramifications of the recent Supreme Court leak on abortion in Latin countries. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute.
WLRN Public Media.